Hello again, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each week we bring you a new interview with one of Hollywood's top directors conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Tom McCarthy's film, Spotlight. The film tells the true story of how a team of investigative reporters from the Boston Globe uncovered a massive scandal and decades-long cover-up of child molestation within the local Catholic archdiocese. Mr. McCarthy received his first DGA Award nomination for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film for his work on Spotlight, as well as an Academy Award nomination for Best Director. Following the Los Angeles screening of the film, Mr. McCarthy spoke with director Jonathan Levine about the challenges and joys of bringing Spotlight to the screen. Listen on for highlights from their conversation recorded at the DGA Theater. Enjoy. Hi, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. First of all, congratulations on an amazing, amazing film. Thank you. Loved it. Um, and I guess the first question would just be, uh, what brought you to it, and how did you uh, end up wanting to tell this story? Uh, it was actually one of the first projects that was uh, brought to me. Most of the work up to this point, I've self-generated, and uh, I, I think I was editing Win Win the first time I was approached with it, and uh, um, I, it was just... Uh, it was some some information was sent to me uh, through two of the producers, Nicole Rockland and Bly Faust, and uh, I just couldn't. It was too much. I couldn't consider it. It was kind of the first time I, I looked at material and thought, "Wow, this is really interesting and compelling." And but I was kind of in the middle of the edit and I couldn't give it my full attention, and I sort of reluctantly passed on it. And then, as fate would have it, a year later, they came back to me, uh, and I was sort of had a little bit of space. And they flew to New York, and I sat down with them. And at that point, they had paired with uh, Michael Sugar and Steve Golan at Anonymous, and um, and just kind of presented the story to me, the sort of thumbnail version uh, of, of Marty Baron arriving at the Globe. And I just kind of connected with it, and I thought uh, this probably came back to me for a reason. Uh, there was a, I had a lot of kind of um, you know personal connection to the story. I lived in Boston, I went to school there, I grew, was raised Catholic, I knew of the story. And uh, I just found it really kind of compelling, you know, and I I, uh, I said, look, I'll get involved. I'm, let's try it in a new way. Uh, let's go find a writer because I was writing on another script then. Um, and uh, that was the beginning of the process. We did sort of an exhaustive search and we uh, found Josh Singer, who was just coming off the Fifth Estate. Uh, Josh and I hit it off and I hired him. Um, and then... Uh, Josh uh, was planning his first trip up to Boston, and I said, you know, I'll go with you because I would really want to meet these reporters in person for the first time. I'd only met Mike Resendez at that point, and Josh had sat with him also in L.A. Um, and we took a train up to Boston and sat with these the six people depicted in the film, the four reporters and the two editors. And um, we had such a great four or five days up there, kind of sitting with them a couple of times, and both individually and collectively. And by the end of that, I was just kind of hooked, and I called Josh, and I said, hey, if you don't mind, I'm going to come back on as a full-time writer with you. Uh, I just was enjoying our you know, initial collaboration and the material, and then, and then we were just kind of off and running. 
And so how did you guys collaborate together? Would you split up scenes? Would you... Yeah, it was a long time before we even got to the scene work because there was so much research. There was no um, source material on this movie other than the reporting. So we had to conduct, uh, you know, hundreds of hours of interviews, not just with the reporters, but about everybody else you see depicted in the movie and a lot of other people uh, on the periphery of the story, former reporters, uh, editors, publishers, uh, lawyers, PR people in Boston, anyone we could talk to that would give us some texture and color on the culture of Boston at that time, not to mention the Globes. So we spent a good year and a half just doing that and slowly piecing together our outline based on those, you know, uh, conversations. Um, keep in mind, when we were doing this in 2012, uh, most of the reporters had, uh, you know, it was 11, 12 years since their investigation. So we really had, in many cases, sort of triangulate the conversations and, and, and recreate the investigation and the steps of it as best we could. Sounds kind of overwhelming at, at a certain <laughs> point, right? I mean, you had so much information, I would imagine. How did you then narrow it into uh, kind of a manageable three-act film? Yeah, it was tough. I mean, but it was exciting. I mean, it was really almost an embarrassment of riches. I think once we kind of, you know, I, I sort of had decided early on and told Josh that I really wanted to kind of commit to the ensemble uh, I didn't want to conflate characters uh, when if we didn't have to, especially with the, the main characters. And I, I just, uh, I think early on, I was committed to this idea of of following the investigation uh, through the team. So uh, we would not just be following one or two protagonists, but six. Um, and uh, that was the kind of big thing that I think. Once we made that decision, and uh, it sort of unleashed us, it unleashed Josh to kind of go and and you know keep accumulating this information. And then we just we just kept shaping and shaping and shaping uh, till we had a really strong outline. And then uh, and then the writing happened very quickly. We were very aggressive with that because we felt like all the pieces are in place. Now keep in mind we rewrote for another year and a half once we had a draft. Um, but uh, you know uh, once once we kind of cracked the back of the investigation and what we thought the main themes were, um, you know, we, we, we kind of got over the hump, so to speak. You mentioned the ensemble, which the cast is absolutely incredible in this movie. Um, when did you start to think about actors? What was that process like, casting everyone? Um, yeah, I always, uh, once I'm really into writing, I start thinking of characters, uh, or actors, rather. Um, uh, I don't normally act until I have a really strong script, uh, just because I don't like to reach out to actors unless I'm really convinced they are, and I feel like I can't do that until I really see the finished script and have a really good sense of the story. But once we did, um, many of the names we were banding about, or I was kind of keeping a list of, and, and uh, we went out to almost immediately. Uh, Mark Ruffalo was the first. Uh, I've known Mark for a long time. I've never worked with him, and I just you know sent him an email and a script, and then went through his agents also, and. Uh, and we kind of did that for a lot of these people. I've known them, John Slattery, Lev Schreiber, Stanley Tucci, Billy Crudup. Um, you know, there was a lot of people I was able just to reach out to um, and, and, uh, and, and work that way, which makes it easier. Um, Michael Keaton and, and Rachel McAdams, that kind of came out of our group discussion with me and my producers and, uh, and Josh about who would be right. Um, and, uh, but really, that cast fell together uh, pretty quickly. Um, for me, it was about building a cast that not only was right, but would uh, understand and commit to what I was trying to uh, develop uh, directorially. Um, and that's always a little trickier. 
What is that? Is that meaning like being part of an ensemble rather yeah. than wanting to? Yeah, yeah. Well, most of these guys carry movies, right. you know, and uh, and they should. They're great actors, and it's kind of uh, making sure everyone's on the same page. A lot of these guys come from the theater, I know, and I that was one thing. But with some of the others, like uh, Rachel and Michael, just being clear how we were approaching this movie, and you know, to their credit, they were they were game from the beginning and and brought a lot to it. Um, you know, one of my favorite things about watching this film uh, again. Um, is watching all the action around the central bit of action and how dialed in these guys are. The listening that goes on in this movie is so active and so important to the storytelling because I think it's probably what makes a, a great journalist is, is being a great listener. And I think it's, I personally think it's what makes a great actor. Um, I can tell an actor is truly engaged and committed when they're listening and when it becomes active and um, some of my favorite scenes, that one scene where they get a call from Richard Sipe, and they're just, we just kind of pull back slowly, uh, and we're, they're just listening to that conversation, how dialed in they are. And they're sharing information on looks and eyebrows, which isn't really even in the script. They're just doing that based on where they are, their character is at that point of the story and who they're connecting with. And um, that scene, I think, tells a lot of the story about how well these guys work together. How do you like to work with actors? Did you rehearse it all? Did you, um, you know, just talk through character and then do it on the day? What was the process like? Uh, no, I'm a big believer in rehearsal. It was a little more difficult with this group because they're all great actors and that means they're all working a lot and they're tough sometimes to get into a rehearsal room. Uh, but we did for about a week in New York and then more time in Boston and Toronto. And uh, for me, it's just straight up table work. It's going through scenes. It's making sure we understand, look, there was so much information and backstory on every one of these investigative beats that I really had to make sure they understood exactly where we were in the story uh, both in terms of in information and obviously emotionally. So it was just, a, it was a case of really kind of hammering through that. And then I use rehearsals a lot, not so much to get performance right, but to uh, bring the actors up to speed, develop a language with them. And then I use it a lot as a kind of refine, in terms of refining the writing. So I'm always uh, sort of stripping away as I see what they're bringing to it or adding if I think it need be. There was also like a lot of great blocking in it. Um, I don't imagine that happened in rehearsal. That probably happened when you got into the space. But you, you mentioned that the the office was something you guys built in yeah. uh, in Toronto. Yeah, we uh, we shot all the exteriors in Boston, and then we went up to Toronto and built uh, that massive newsroom. Steve Carter, my my wonderful production designer, built that, uh, and worked closely closely with uh, Masanobu Takinagi, my DP. Uh, and just trying to get the space right. We I, we really wanted a live space. We didn't want to be in a studio. Uh, we wanted that depth. We wanted that natural light. Uh, and we it took a long time to find it because the, these newsrooms are massive. Um, the, the globe, as you can see, the few times we depict it, and we did shoot in there quite a bit, uh, it's like an ocean liner. It's absolutely enormous. And, and for me, visually, that was important because subtly I wanted the audience to know that this was a powerful institution, physically, visually, that was taking on another powerful institution, the Catholic Church. Um, but we built that set and we built the spotlight office up in Toronto. So that almost became our studio work, which a lot of the movie takes place in there. And um, we found it, like I said, in this old abandoned Sears building on the kind of outskirts of Toronto and just, just uh, you know, did a complete build in there. And it allowed us, once we got up there, we were able to move very, very quickly um, with those scenes and all, all, everything we shot up there. Did you shoot one camera, two cameras? Uh, we shot uh, two cameras a fair amount of time, never more than three. I think maybe at Fenway, 
our that's the one time we had three cameras. Uh, we shot a live game. Uh, it was the first night of production. Uh, I don't <laughs> ever recommend that. Um, it was just ridiculous. It took us nine innings to get a page and a half scene. Um, and that was because people kept offering Mark Ruffalo a beer halfway through every scene. Uh, in fact, one guy offered a beer and Mark said politely, because he's the nicest man on the planet, no, it's okay, I'm drinking non-alcoholic. Uh, not get out of the scene, but I'm drinking non-alcoholic. So, of course, two innings later, the guy came back with a non-alcoholic beer, <laughs> um, which you can never be too nice. Um, but it was really, it was a really, we had to do it because it was the very end of the season, our first day of shooting. And the Red Sox were not having a good year, and they're not playing in the playoffs, and we had to get it done. So... Um, we uh, had no choice, but it really threw us into the spirit of filming in Boston. I mean, you shoot Fenway, and and you know you are all baptized, uh, <laughs> and it was pretty exciting. You could just kind of feel it. Other other members of the cast were showing up just to kind of sit in the stands, and a bunch of the spotlight team were there who were very involved in this whole process. Um, I should say we never could have made this movie without their complete involvement every step of the way. Um, uh, so that was that was a pretty exciting way to start, and that was probably the one time we used three cameras. Um, if you're shooting a scene and it's not quite what you want it to be, either from a performance perspective, something feels wrong. What? How do you diagnose that? Does that ever happen? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, my feeling is by the time I get to set, I understand the scene, I understand what it's about, uh, and that leaves a little bit of room for rehearsal. Uh, which I always start with an empty room and just my actors and DP, and we rehearse the scene and kind of allow them to block it and figure out what we need. Uh, I'll show it to the crew, and then Moss and I would probably refine it sometime visually and pick our shots. But, um, you know, if I'm really stuck on a scene, it usually means I don't understand it. So we're missing an element of it. Something's not connecting. And I think by the time we got to set on Spotlight, I, I don't I don't think we ever really had that problem. I think we really all, there was so much information to get through that we really had it broken down and I, um, I think there were moments where you know uh, look it's the great thing about collaborating right suddenly you get to a live space and it, someone's going to get inspiration now you can't do that all the time because you'll never make your day but there's going to be things that will inform uh, and and that was exciting to let happen and you know I'd never worked with Masa before uh, we had a, a very healthy prep uh, for the film and I think we were definitely on the same page but even with him sometimes it was great to kind of he'd come with something new a new idea a new approach um, and and then it would just be a game time call. Let's talk a little bit about your visual approach. Do you, how do you get on the same page with your DP? Do you watch movies? Do you have reference photography? What's the uh, approach there? I reference movies and, in some case, photographers, but I don't do that a lot. Really, I think we very quickly commit to um, what working through the script together and kind of really talking about it and going through again and again and again till we develop a language that's consistent and realize where did we repeat, where aren't we being consistent, um, and trying to leave a little bit of room in there for our own interpretation, like I said, on the day and based on rehearsals. But um, I don't storyboard by and large. I've never been, a, I've never really worked for me uh, because of I think uh, it, it, for me it sort of uh, precludes the rehearsal process to some degree. So. Um, uh, you know, I think that is really the way. It's just sort of grinding it out and getting, uh, developing a language together. Um, that said, there were, uh, you know, uh, every film, there's a couple of moments where 
you have to uh, you kind of have to tack right. So Moss and I, I was he's a wonderful uh, handheld photographer. He's beautiful with it. He's got a great sense of it. And we were trying to find where that fit in this film. And uh, I remember we were talking about these different moments, and I was kind of pushing him gently to do it, and he was feeling not feeling it. And we we're kind of in a good way banging heads on it. And then the first day we walked into Spotlight, I walked in knowing exactly how we're going to shoot it, and he said, "I think it should be handheld." And I was like. Now you're telling me? Uh, and we cleared the set. We just sat there for like 15 minutes and talked about it. And he had kind of had this, as soon as he got on that set for the first time, had a reason why. And it was such a strong, specific reason to all the work we had done up to this point. It was an easy decision. Um, so we basically stay handheld in the spotlight until a certain moment in the investigation where we feel like they really emotionally land on the investigation. And then we go steady with it. And it was just, um, it was a great call. It was really subtle. He's so good at it, you almost can't pick it up. Up, but it created this energy that we wanted, this kind of not quite fully visually committed to it. Um, you know, I think one thing that we talked about a lot in this movie was restraint, restraint of camera and style. And I think when you do that, you're riding a much finer line. Uh, you know, um, he uh, he's Masa shot a lot of other movies where the camera moves a lot. And I think we both felt with this, we had to really pick our moments that we really wanted to hew as close to the style of the real reporter's lifestyle and workplace as possible. And that felt a very sort of unadorned approach visually, um, which is a fine line that we were walking. I think it's it totally works. I mean, I felt the restraints and I felt it's creating tension and, and, and I thought it worked wonderfully. Um, it's a little scary though. You don't really have any bag of tricks to rely on, right? I mean, being, being restrained is, is definitely... Um, yeah. A challenge. Yeah, it was. Uh, but keep in mind, we also had great actors. So I think, you know, taking a page out of maybe Sidney Lumet's uh, uh, handbook and a few other great uh, American directors specifically, we felt like we wanted to be very efficient and economical with our camera use and pick our moments. Um, that we wanted to uh, not feel like we were visually intruding in a way, but in sense we were witnessing and supporting these reporters because ultimately we're seeing it through their eyes. And, uh, you know, that was the commitment we made. Um, and that almost started at the script stage, but really it was in production that we, I think, found the visual kind of rhythm of the movie, you know. Well, it works really well because you never feel like you're being manipulated. I mean, people barely raise their voice a lot in this movie, and it's, it is kind of very restrained, yet it shows kind of the um, the mastery that they have and how incredible... Um, what uh, how incredible this investigation is. And I'm wondering just about the responsibility you felt to the real spotlight team and to to the victims of this because obviously it's a very important important story. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, you know, when you work that closely with these people and we did, we spent so much time with them, not just the reporters, but we sat down with a number of the survivors to pick the Joe Crowley and Phil Saviano specifically and they're in very uh, very impressive people. And um, to hear their stories uh, just once uh, will have an impact on you that you'll never forget. To get a sense of, of, of what, how these men struggle with this today. And these are very strong-willed people who, who have committed their lives to making sure this doesn't happen again. So, um, uh, but they do have an impact. And by the time we had gone into production, we were very close to these reporters. And, you know, look, every movie you make, you want to get it right, right? You're trying to do the best job you can. There is a, an extra added burden of responsibility when you sort of uh, feel a personal connection to the people and to the world. 
Um, someone said to me recently, well, look, you made a movie about reporters. You knew reporters were probably going to like it. And I said, yes, unless it wasn't accurate, in which case they would tear us to shreds, you know? And, and I think these guys, look, we were probably talking to them for a year before we felt like they really opened up. Um, like it must be horrible to treat doctors. It's really horrible investigating reporters. You know, they just they just didn't trust us, and they're used to asking the questions, not being asked. So uh, we could just feel it, and they're very good at making you feel good about yourself, and then walking out of the room and being like, "They told us nothing," you know. And, and Josh and I just kept feeling like we were amateur reporters getting played left, right, and center. But after about a year. They really started to open up, and the movie started to open up as a result, but uh, that took a while. So, uh, yeah, you do you do feel that. But look, once we got even into production, we had a reporter on set just about every day, uh, which informed everyone we were working with. Everyone was talking to them, not just me, my DP, my production designer, certainly Wendy Chuck, my brilliant costume designer. I mean, you know, that look is so subtle and so absolutely spot on, and it's really tricky to do. Um, but they were... You know, Marty Barron, who's now running the Washington Post, uh, I remember this so well. Steve Carter popped into my office and said, any chance I could reach out to Marty and just see if he'll maybe give me some insight into his office? And so I said, yeah, here's his email. Go ahead. And with, you know, a half hour later, Steve had like a two-page email from Marty telling, you know, just describing his office in detail, um, what he had, including like a little stuffed pink pelican that someone gave him when he was leaving Miami. Um, and th that kind of cooperation was so instrumental to sort of the authenticity of the film, you know? Um, how much were you interested in like showing journalism today through the lens of journalism sort of 15 years ago. I mean, how much of that kind of, to me, there's so much in this story about that. Um, not overtly, but I think it's, uh, it's very interesting. Well, two comments on that. One, look, it's a period movie, but we never wanted the audience to be I think Moss and I felt really strongly about this, as did the rest of my creative team, that you were conscious that you were watching it. Yes, there's certain tropes, you, you know, certain wardrobe things and, and visual things and technology things and uh, an AOL sign uh, halfway through the film uh, that, that we felt were important. But we never wanted to sort of overplay that. We wanted it to feel very relevant, very current. We wanted the audience to lose themselves in it. And I think we've felt collectively as a creative team sometimes films overplay that because it's exciting and it's inviting. Um, so that was uh, the first thing. In terms of where we're at today, look, journalism's in a very different place than it was in 2001. I think most of us in this room know this and it's a real uh, travesty. It's an American tragedy, really, right? Um, what's going on right now at CNN every day and, and now, uh, you know, Ben Carson and others saying, you can't ask me questions about my history. It's like, I just saw some reporter on CNN flummoxed, like, so this means we can't vet stories anymore when they say something? And it's actually becoming almost a norm, which is terrifying, right? Because if they don't do it, who does it? Nobody does it, and we don't know who's telling the truth and who's lying. Um, uh, so we, we understood that. Josh and I did a lot of research on that. We didn't feel like we could really play it into the movie. The best we could do is show by example, a great example of high-level investigative journalism um, uh, at a local paper, right? This isn't the New York Times, not the Washington It's a local paper. It's Boston. This was a local story. And uh, they had no idea when they were when they were kind of diving in that this was going to, you know, uh, have national, international implications. They just didn't know it was that big. Um, and that was actually another challenge, how to transport audiences back to a time before anyone knew this about the Catholic Church. Right. That's what I was asking you about because I thought it was kind of 
common knowledge. But then when I heard that 50% of the clergy is sexually active, yeah. that's, that's legit. Yeah, that's, I, that's yeah, insane. I think it's legit. Uh, look, that's Richard Sype, uh, who we depict. Richard Jenkins uh, plays his voice in the movie on the phone. Um, uh, Sype was a guy that they suddenly started talking to, who turned out to be an expert on this on a whole new level, published numerous books. You can check out his stuff online if you're interested. But his findings, uh, he was a priest. He studied this for 35, 40 years now, most of his life, uh, adult life. And he, um, it, it's they're pretty amazing what he talks about. And I think when he started talking to the Globe team, it just blew this thing open in a whole new way. Like they suddenly started using words like crisis and phenomena. And at that point, no one knew it was that epic. It was that grand. Uh, so they were constantly kind of, you know, when you talk to the reporters now, they were like, we just... You just couldn't imagine seeing it this big. And there was a part of them that was, you know, it was the brass ring, right? Uh, it was exciting as a journalist. That's what you're looking for, those big stories. But they lived in this town, and they cared about this town, and I think it was also uh, horrific, you know? It was incredibly troubling. What's the current state of the Globe and the Spotlight team? I imagine the Globe circulation's way down. And yeah, I mean, I think they've cut by about... 20, 30% of their staff look, you know, around the country, all staffs have been cut. A lot of Metro dailies have been shuttered. Interestingly enough, because of Marty Baron and the legacy of this story, I think they've, the spotlight team is still intact and they've actually increased it by two reporters. And that's not the norm right now around the country. So that's really exciting. And, you know, I think once we had shown the movie to them and they signed off on it and were excited about it, we knew we had at least something close to, uh, the spirit of what we wanted to achieve with this movie, which was uh, an authentic approach to reporting. Um, you know, early on, I think I made the decision that there was something so interesting about the craft of of investigation, and not just procedural, not just in that way, but just all the nuts and bolts, the kind of little things that these people do that are many times are so far from dramatic or thrilling, but rather they're just tedious. You know, and they're the little, they're the annoying things that they get paid money to do, uh, because it's the only way to get to to get to a result. And it was really for for Josh and I, we kind of nerded out on it, and then we thought, well, if this is interesting to us, we might be weird and have this fetish. But I'm betting if we capture it, it'll be interesting to the audience. And that was kind of one of the big gambles with the film. Have you ever done this much research on a screenplay? No, never. Never, not close. There was just too much information and reading not only what happened within, but everything else around. And there was so much uh, to kind of consume. Uh, and, you know, I'll start with crediting Josh as being a wonderful partner who's got an ability to kind of digest information and, and break it down. But I felt that way about my entire creative team. Everyone was coming to the table and doing so much research. And, and you know, uh, reaching out to the in the Globe, who was so amazingly... Uh, cooperative in this. We kept going back there to film. A lot of the interiors we would shoot there and then connect it to our one or two sets in Toronto. But they just kept us full access. But as a result, we just were, you know, kind of anything we could get. We're truckloads of stuff from Boston up to Toronto and uh, paint samples, anything you can imagine, we were kind of pulling from them. And uh, I think collectively, we all just got so into it, getting as close as we could to the truth. And, you know, you can kind of feel it in a film where the crew and the creative team just really kicks in and starts getting excited. And you're all just kind of high on that. And uh, this was one of those projects. It was, it was just so much to dig into. It was so rich, you know. Do you think the, uh, the research... I mean, these interviews and stuff like that. Was that, did it feel similar? Did it feel like you were directing? Did it feel like this similar skill set? 
or did it feel like you were almost a documentarian? No, ultimately the skill set is similar, right? You're doing your job. Everything up to that point may be a little different, right? But ultimately you feel like you got a job to do. You got to understand the scene, understand visually how you're going to approach it, emotionally what you're trying to get to in terms of its singular truth. Uh, And then maybe the most challenging thing was this was um, uh, we had a huge ensemble. I mean, I felt like I I feel like I'm still casting this movie. (laughs) It just kind of it just kind of kept going and going and going and going, and it's very exciting. You know, when you get deep into your bench and you got guys like Jamie Sheridan or Paul Guilfoyle and Neil Huff and coming in and just giving you great scenes. it's really just a cool way to work, you know, um, and, and it, it just, that was maybe one of the biggest tasks, but ultimately it's sort of getting everyone on the same page. You know, you got guys like Michael Keaton, who have been doing movies for quite a long time, as you well know, and then you got guys like James LeBlanc, who plays Patrick McSorley, who we cast out of Boston, who's done a few bit parts in movies, he's a member of the Sheet metal union in, in Southie, and how do we get those guys in a room together and make it feel seamless? That was the fun challenge of this one you know when you have someone who's not a michael keaton in in a room opposite such an incredibly powerful ensemble um do you feel like you have to approach them differently how do you pick them how do you because for me the one of the most exceptional things about the movie is that every single performance is just spot on and so when you have someone who is coming in for a day how do you work with them and get them comfortable and get the performance out of them (laughs) well usually i try to bring them in rehearsal if they have a key role um and i i think the trick is treat everyone the same right there's no you just can't have you can't have a hierarchy right um and and most of these actors understand they're only as good as the people they're in the scene with so there's got to be a generosity of spirit and trust on that set and i think once you can feel that i mean when we shot that particular scene with patrick mcsorley and stanley tucci and mark ruffalo uh when they're interviewing patrick mcsorley for the first time you know we started on him and it was just a call I made and he kind of did it and I just saw Stanley just looked at me like whoa you know and we're like oh this this is going to be fun and we felt that way a number of times there's a there's a the one small scene where Robbie goes to interview the guy from Providence um, that guy is from Providence he's a dentist uh, and he's an actor and he just came in I didn't you know I auditioned him I thought he was good but he just when that one scene that one look he gets when he mentions they're there to talk about Father Talbot I mean that's difficult to do it's really hard to walk on a set one scene one day opposite Michael Keaton and bring that in a way that seems to really fall in line with what everybody else is doing in the movie um, but you really need the actors uh, to help with that but you know some of that of course is, is my job and it's the environment you create on set, I think, is, is, is really important. What do you do to try to create like a, an on-set environment where people can be generous in that way? Is it just picking the right actors, or is it more than that? Uh, that and great snacks, those help. Uh, <laughs> you know, no, I think it is. I think a big part of it is casting, getting that right, and then keeping a mood on set where we're there to work, and we're there to do the best work, and you know, uh, take away all the other obstacles. Some of that can happen in rehearsal because you don't have a ton of time on set, but it's like you just got to put everyone in that in that mind where we're there to work and work quick. Look, when you have a movie like this, we didn't have that much money, so we don't have a lot of time. We've got to be very efficient when we get to set, and um, we can't spend a lot of time figuring things out. Um, we've got to keep it moving, and uh, I always try to set a tone with my crew early on that that's how we're going to be working, and I think it it sort of frees people up. It takes them out of their head in a lot of ways, and not just the actors, the rest of the key creative crew. It kind of gets us working in a very um, efficient way um, that still leaves a lot of room for creativity, you know, because you're, you're, tr- you're kind of on a set. You're always wrestling with those two things, right? 
talk a little bit about your relationship with time. <laughs> did you say talk to me about time? Yeah. I'll so like, <laughs> like how, awesome. many, how many days did you have? Uh, we had 45 days. So a nice, a nice amount of time. Felt but, pretty good. But how often, you know, during the day are you checking the clock? How often are you... Just talk about your relationship with time and how it informs how you approach a day directing. Uh, I usually have a pretty good idea. Look, I talk to my DP and AD at the beginning of every day. I have a good idea what we have to do and where we have to be at. And sometimes you are ahead and sometimes you're behind. Um, but normally I come from a school in the independent world where you're just getting everything you can and you're moving as quickly as you can and you have to make very strong choices. And I think Moss and I were very, you know, there was never a scene where we're like, well, we have a little extra time. Let's just go get a little extra coverage. We're like, we don't need it. We got it in performance. We know what we came here to get and we moved on. And I think you can kind of feel it was a little bit rigorous, our approach that way, but you can kind of feel it in the film and it felt true to the work that the reporters were doing. I think in some weird sense, their approach to their work, which was so effective, totally informed our approach, you know, which is this kind of blue collar, rigorous, unadorned approach to the work. That's what we were trying to capture. And uh, I really think we took that as our cue. And then, and then, you know, in the edit room with Tom McCardle, who I've made all my movies with, uh, I think Tom had a really great sense of rhythm because look, with this movie, how we shot it and because of the amount of material, it, a lot of it became about pacing and how to maintain the tension where you don't really have a super active antagonist, right? The church is, a, by design, a very passive, uh, although ever-present uh, antagonist. But how do you maintain that tension where the audience knows where we're going and they don't see a bad guy? You know, we didn't have, uh, you know, an albino priest with a cross in his head running around <laughs> killing people. Uh, we just had churches everywhere. Uh, so it was how to maintain, you know, maintain that without turning it into... A thriller, because it's really not a thriller. It has some thrilling moments. It's a drama. Um, that was that was probably one of the the great big and fun challenges of this one. Well, you did a beautiful job. It's beautifully directed. It's been an honor talking to you, and uh, thank you guys so much. For thank being you here. all for sticking around. I appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed listening. You can watch a video of this and many other director Q and A's on YouTube or on our website at dga.org slash events. If you're enjoying The Director's Cut, please subscribe to it on iTunes or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. Over the next several weeks, we will have episodes covering several more Oscar-nominated films, so be sure to check those out as they arrive. We hope you hear from us soon. This podcast is brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.